1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast, and I have Matt Weber. uh, He's a professor in the Department of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering at Notre Dame. So uh, he's part of the Weber Lab, named after his uh, namesake, and we'll be talking about the uh, supramolecular chemistry. We'll get into that. So Matt, thanks for coming.
2: Yeah, no, happy to be here. Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's a pleasure to speak with you, and scientists love to talk about our work, and so I, I love the opportunity to do that.
1: Okay, so what is supra molecular chemistry? How's the chemistry you do different from I don't know normal chemistry, if
2: there is such a thing? Yeah, so I think conventional chemistry, as it's understood, and maybe you know what people are most familiar with from you know basic chemistry classes, maybe they took in college or something like that, would be uh, the chemistry of covalent bonds, right? So things like carbon-carbon bonds, uh, carbon-nitrogen bonds, carbon-oxygen bonds, you know, chemistry that that holds molecules together. Uh, when we think about supramolecular chemistry, we think about non-covalent interactions. So interactions that are that are individually weaker, but if you design the molecules in such a way, you can actually get really um, you, you can kind of get ensembles of these interactions that that produce a very strong uh, uh, overall product, right? So you can have two molecules that interact through non-covalent interactions. Maybe it's uh, opposing charges. Maybe it's uh, it's it's polar uh, type groups interacting. Maybe it's, uh, you know, hydrogen bonding, the sharing of a, of a hydrogen atom or something like that, um, which can give rise to really, you know, really interesting um, structures that can be very stable and, and, and organized on a molecular scale. And so that's sort of what we think about. We think about how we can design molecules to interact non-covalently in a very defined and uh, predictable way.
1: What about like proteins and enzymes and, you know,
2: yeah, sure. So I'm fitting think, you into
1: know, uh, you know complicated like 3D structures, you know, molecules inserting right, yeah. into the other.
2: So that's a perfect example, right? So I think proteins are, you know, a lot of the interactions that hold proteins together are things like beta sheets and alpha helices and other sorts of non covalent um, interactions typically driven by hydrogen bonding. Right. So these these give proteins a lot of a lot of their structure, so called secondary structure of proteins. The primary structure being the all of the different amino acids held together by covalent bonds, the secondary structure then arising from secondary interactions.
1: So what kind of specific applications are you working on and trying to figure out?
2: You know, we're interested kind of in a lot of different things. So we're fundamentally interested in how we can use these interactions to build systems that maybe resemble or recreate uh, the living world, right? And so in nature, there's things so- such as, you know, very defined uh, nanoscale architectures. You look at viruses, and they have perfect symmetry. They have um, the exact number of components that that is that is needed in order to make up that structure is is perfectly defined. It's discrete, um, and so we're interested in can we build synthetic systems where we can engineer interactions uh, among these synthetic building blocks in such a way to sort of uh, gain control over structure of a of a resulting assembly. Um, and then simultaneously, we're also interested in how nature does recognition, and so. Um, for example, our body, its immune system, you know, part of the function of that is, is based on antibodies and their, their recognition of, of uh, specific markers or antigens in the body. And so what we want to do is try to build synthetic systems that maybe recreate that type of affinity um, in a non-biological way. So we, we typically like to think in the context in this of, of host-guest chemistry. So a macrocyclic host, you can think about like a basket-shaped molecule. And then it has some sort of specificity in recognizing and binding to something that fits really nicely um, into that basket.
1: How would that sensing go on though from non-living molecules?
2: So it depends on how we we design the molecules. So um, if we design the interactions in such a way, right, we can um, we can we can basically uh, make these things orthogonal um, to other sorts of interactions that might occur, right, and so. We use a, a macrocycle in my lab that binds with very, very high affinity to a, a small subset of guests. And so the thinking being that if we take this macrocycle and we combine it with one of these guests, it doesn't really matter what else is around because nothing really can compete for binding. And so we're able to actually facilitate recognition just on the basis of having such tight binding between these, these things, uh, like the, the host and the guest that we, we've chosen for that application.
1: So you're you're also trying to uh, create it sounds like functional groups again so you can control the chemistry of various interactions. Uh, you know I've read about uh, you know an acetyl group, uh, hydroxy radical, uh, you know, things like that. Uh, uh, what kind of functional groups, if, if that's even the right word, are you trying to create in the lab,
0: well, what kind of you functions will they uh, have?
2: I think I should I should preface this by saying I'm not a trained chemist. Right, I am an engineer. And so I learned chemistry from YouTube. I, I tell people it's kind of, you know, somewhat joking, but mostly true. Uh, so we use just enough chemistry to build interesting functional systems. And so um, so we're trying to design uh, applications around or functional systems around uh, supramolecular motifs. And so if we take, say, a host and a guest and we want them to interact and bind, um, maybe we want to use that to create a modular material, right? So maybe we have a material that has a bunch of these hosts on it, and I say, you know, I want to go and develop a therapy for X. Well, I can I can then take some drug or some bioactive signal, link it to a guest, and now I can load it up on my material, right? And if I decide I want to go and develop a, you know, a, a therapy or a diagnostic test or something else for some other indication, well, I've got this modular system. Now all I need to do is take that new drug or that new bioactive molecule and attach it to the guest. And it, it just kind of plugs right into the, uh, to the macrocycle on my material. Right. And so that's sort of what we're thinking about is how we can engineer these interactions in or, in such a way that we can build functional systems.
1: Well, if your chemistry is not the main thing, what, what of your background and credentials gives you like a unique ability to work on this stuff?
2: You know, I come from a sort of interesting training and in, um, in uh Sort of crossing disciplines of, of chemistry, material science, uh, biomedical engineering. Um, I've trained in uh, in the areas of regenerative medicine and drug delivery. Um, sort of at that intersection where those things might intersect with rationally designed materials and new material chemistry. And so that's sort of what we're able to do. Is I think you know maybe we're we're in some ways jacks of all trades, master of none, right? We we, we capture aspects of, of the chemistry and the materials, but then we're able to think about um, creative new applications for this. So maybe it's identifying a need in diabetes, right? So a, a large portion of my research program is, is geared into um, improving the way that insulin and glucagon and other therapeutic molecules for diabetes function uh, in terms of controlling blood glucose, right? And so we're able to, to think about materials and molecular scale interactions that might promote um, enhanced therapy, might stabilize the protein, might make them, you know, more inclined to be active at high glucose, not active at low glucose, for example, in the in the case of insulin. Uh, and so I think it's really just sort of, you know, we're able to to kind of, um, you know, use a little bit of, of various disciplines, piece all this together in, in kind of a convergent way uh, to uh, to think about new solutions for problems. I'm ultimately an engineer. I like to solve problems.
1: Yeah, no, it makes sense. Um, what have you gleaned in studying the chemistry of this all? the uh Like you said, it, you know, we don't quite know how, uh, you know, a basket-shaped uh, molecule that would be the receptacle, I don't know, links up with another molecule that would, uh, you know, bind with it in a specific way. Like, are there any insights into how that kind of thing happens?
2: Yeah, you know, I think that... Um, you know these some of these molecules have very mysterious properties right and so um uh, certainly there's obviously you know the thermodynamics of these interactions are very important right the entropy that uh that that uh is often gained by you know frustrated water molecules no longer having to be surrounding a a, a hydrophobic guest or stuck in the portal of a macrocycle right these end up driving these interactions um in a lot of ways, and then there's additional enthalpic components of this. There is, you know, electrostatic interactions with some of these macrocycles that are increasingly appreciated and leveraged, right? And so we kind of dial in a lot of these tricks in making really good motifs, right? We make motifs that that um, that maximize the disorder of of the solvent water molecules, and then also, um, in some ways, maximize or leverage electrostatic interactions to further stabilize the complex
1: when you have two molecules that are going to bind in solution do you believe it's just brownian motion just random motion that will align the right functional parts of each fast enough for a reaction to occur like does the does the speed of a reaction and the completion percentage of it correlate with you know random fluctuations in of moving molecules or do you think this Yeah, probably else probably might- not
2: probably not brownian motion but these things are these things approach kind of a diffusion governed interaction right so um you can look at studies on on some of these molecules that we work with and they suggest that you have k on you know interaction you know the on rate of interaction approaching the diffusion limit so something that looks a lot like uh, you know diffusion limited uh, interaction between small molecules they you know their k on start to start to approach those sort of thresholds for for diffusion governed uh, interactions and so that's um you know we I tend to think about it i mean there is some you know these these macrocycles maybe they they have some breathing modes maybe they open and they close and they uh just a little bit and there's some fluctuations there that maybe slow things ever so slightly uh but it's not significant right there's not a there's not a massive energy barrier to complex formation um with the macrocycles that we like to play with and that's why we're able to do recognition very fast um reach reach equilibrium you know effectively instantly uh with with these types of systems and then also be able to do uh, recognition and binding in the body right even in you know in blood and flowing uh, bodily fluids we're able to get these these systems to recognize each other uh, and so that's that's due in part to the how fast the reactions occur and then how stable the overall complex is
1: how uh, what's the speed of, uh, of various reactions you know what's the order of magnitude of the speed of a reaction typically
2: You know we've we've done back-of-the-envelope calculations of some of the systems we've worked with and you know you could You'd be safe to say you know on the order of about ten to the seventh to ten to the eighth per mole per second, so like I said, right around that, you know the diffusion limited interaction is about ten to the eighth to ten to the tenth somewhere in that range, depending on size of the molecules diffusing and whatever else right and so it's you know it's approaching that i mean it's it's you think about this you know if we we I like to kind of joke that this is kind of like super molecular click chemistry that we're doing we're doing recognition of molecules in a way that is mostly orthogonal um But it happens very quickly, right? So some of the best click reactions out there, some of the things that are being tried for bio-orthogonal click chemistry, their reaction rates are, you know, four to seven orders of magnitude slower in terms of K-on. Because you have to, you know, you're breaking covalent bonds, you're making new covalent bonds, you're rearranging, you're doing some other things that require decent um, energy input. Uh, By comparison, the non-covalent recognition we're able to achieve, uh, for the most part, is going to happen a lot faster.
1: Well. Uh, when you say faster, how much faster? An order of magnitude or multiple? I think
2: it's about four to four to seven orders of magnitude faster, depending on which reactions you want to compare it to. But you know, if you want to compare this to to kind of bio-orthogonal Plick reactions, you know, alkyne, uh, azide-type reactions, these kinds of things, about four to seven orders of magnitude faster.
1: You, you said that um, a lot of the molecules will have, you know, it's a low threshold to reactions. Would that mean that the reaction is almost reversible, typically with the ones you work with, like, and if so, how do you keep products without going back to reactants in large well, numbers?
2: So, so in principle, they are reversible. So then it's the time scale over which these things are dynamic. And so in some sense, we control that by the affinity of the the motif, right? So um, we use some of our favorite motifs, some of the ones we've had success with in terms of homing drugs to you know tumor sites or other sorts of things like that, interact on the order of about 10 to the 12th. Uh, inverse molar, if you think about that, in terms of the equilibrium binding constant, or the Ka. Um, so 10 to the 12th inverse molar. I just told you K on is maybe 10 to the, we'll say 10 to the 8th per mole per second, something like that. So that means my K off now is about 10 to the minus fourth per second, right? And if we just do a back of the envelope kind of calculation. And so they are dynamic interactions, but at those affinity regimes, um, it's, approaching something that's very slowly reversible and, and almost even irreversible right you're waiting 10,000 seconds for these things to separate on average so it's uh you know they're they're very stable uh, long-lived interactions once formed when you're in that kind of affinity regime
1: well is there any uh are there any helpers you could add to it make sure that will prevent um, reactions from reversing or will make them complete not just faster i know
2: that's a catalyst
1: but complete more fully You You know, I'd almost like to go the other way.
2: To be be perfectly honest with you, I mean, we think about this in the context of biomedical devices, right? And so we know, like, I could make a gel that I inject near a site of your tumor, right? And we could use a a drug that we modify with a guest that binds at say ten to the twelfth inverse molar with my host that's on the gel. And so I by doing that and having that kind of affinity, I can get a lot of that drug to actually home to the site of your tumor, right? But then those sites are so slowly exchanging that the drug molecule doesn't really ever come off. And so in order to make that drug active at the site, then we have to start putting in things like hydrolyzable linkages between the drug and the guest to make it fall off and be active at the site where we care about. So I'd almost like to even accelerate that off. I'd like to take advantage of the affinity on and then come up with ways to either accelerate the off or um, kind of regenerate those sites so we could drug them again in the future. right? Because if I have to wait 10,000 seconds for a site to become available so I can redrug it, it, uh, that's pretty slow, uh, and, so, and and the chances of ever refilling that site are, are very low, right? So the idea would be if we could take advantage of the affinity to home, but then if we could make that site become more readily available, uh, maybe we could think about ways of, of re-drugging the site.
1: So have you found any uh, macroscopic principles that um, that weren't known to you before you started this work?
2: Yeah, you know, we 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 do some work actually. Uh, speaking of macroscopic, we've been doing some things in the area of um, hydrogels, right? And so this is sort of, sort of some fundamental work. We can use um, host guest recognition as a as a non covalent physical cross linker of hydrogels. And so by doing this, we can make you know networks that exist, you know, 3D kind of percolated mesh type architectures that exist uh, with these junction points being the host and the guest interaction, right? And um, the affinity and then thereby the dynamics of those interactions actually can change the bulk mechanical properties. And so we've had materials that can dissipate stress over you know, five or six orders of magnitude that we've de- demonstrated now. Um, we make things that are now shear thinning, self-healing. So you could have a gel and you could push it through a syringe and then it's a gel again once it leaves the syringe, but it's able to flow under the pressure of of that syringe, um, kind of shear thin. Um, we're now actually even thinking about some sheer thickening materials you know you could think about like um, you know making gels that could have you know uh, uh, resistance to being cut or to uh, to like projectile or different things like that um just based on playing with these interactions and the dynamics of the interactions so uh this is something I think we're all we're very excited about um, kind of from a fundamental perspective of. You know, using molecular scale interactions to drive bulk mechanical properties in soft materials.
1: Yeah, how would you make a substance that
2: that heals itself after it undergoes, you know, shearing or projectile or whatever it is, or tearing? Well, that's actually, it's kind of inherent in some of these materials because we're not using covalent bonds to form the network, right? I have a polymer with a bunch of guests on it and another polymer with a bunch of hosts on it, and I mix them one-to-one. The hosts and the guests find each other, and now I've got a cross-linked network. But I expose that to shear, we break enough of those host-guest interactions for the material to flow. But as soon as I you know, reduce the shear rate, well, now all of a sudden those things can, uh, can go back and find each other and your network is basically restored, right? Versus if I had a covalent bond and I broke that in the course of some sort of mechanical perturbation, um, those bonds never come back, right? So this sort of shear thinning self-healing property is kind of interesting.
1: So if you have two types of bonds, one stronger, the covalent ones, and then a material is under shear or some kind of force, the ones that are preferentially break first are the um, weaker bonds, and then Mm -hmm. the material is not subject to the stress, it quote-unquote heals or the weaker bonds come back together.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that's sort of, that's something we can play with in the, you know, in terms of bulk material properties, we can make things that have, you know, interesting flow properties and, and healing properties.
1: Yeah, that's interesting because then you, you know, I guess you would think the material has a memory, but really what it does is it has two levels of structure based on the, the different bond strengths, and I guess you can engineer in multiple more levels of
2: structure. Yeah, we're 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 thinking about some things where we can play with, you know, multiple different motifs in a single material, and you know, get two different kinds of dynamic properties and other sorts of stuff. This is certainly things that we 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 mess around with a lot, so.
1: Are there any materials you run across that are like origami in nature, where they're they're so complex that uh, they've somehow come together to adapt to all different kinds of stresses in different ways, yet still maintain their integrity?
2: Um, you know, these are things I think this is kind of a, a an area that we're very interested in of using these interactions to drive you know hierarchical organization or structure or things like that. Um, I can't say we're there yet, but you know, I mean, right now we're dangling these off the end of polymers and using that interaction to build materials. I think that's a good first step, um, but certainly, I mean, the kinds of interactions we're using um, uh, look a lot like the other kinds of interactions that nature builds really large structures out of, right? And so if we could come up with a way to kind of program these or template them in a spatially defined way, you know, you could almost imagine turning these into little Lego bricks or something that you could kind of, you know, build and assemble. Um, very interesting uh, and spatially defined uh, architectures. From I think I think that's uh, that's certainly something we talk a lot about. Um, we haven't uh, we haven't be you know gone too far down those paths yet, but maybe next year.
1: Any, any surprises in, uh, in what you're studying? Things that really made you scratch your head or change how you look at uh, the chemistry?
2: Um, you know I. I'd written some reviews and some perspectives in this space a few years ago, and I wrote something along the lines of, oh, supermolecular interactions are really great for building soft materials because you can make them self-healing. And so one of the funny things is we found is if we make the interactions too strong, we can kind of lose the self-healing capacity of these materials over short times. They're ultimately still self-healing, you just have to wait a really, really long time, right? So if I have a very strong interaction, the dynamics are so slow that when I break those interactions to induce flow, it doesn't immediately come back because there's not enough, you know, available sites for to restore and and heal defects um, because of the dy- slow dynamics. And so that was kind of surprising to us initially. But then, you know, as we kind of thought about it a little bit more, it really kind of made sense, right? I mean, we have, you know, we have very slow interactions. Um, healing should require available uh, sites for for new bonds to form, uh, and it just we just have to wait a while. You know, instead of waiting five seconds, now we're at such high affinity. Um, interactions, now we maybe have to wait, you know, a month, right? And so this is sort of a different uh, a different way to think about it.
0: So
1: I would guess you'd be able to make um, carriers for other molecules, you know, one that has, uh, I guess, a hard backbone, I would call it, and then it has another series of bonds um, that can create, you know, spaces for another molecule to be inside of it. Let's say you make like a carrier molecule and you know, with another molecule inside of it. And then it gets injected into the body. And then because of the pH of the heat, um, the soft bonds break and release what's inside. And then it reforms.
2: Yeah, we've thought about, you know, like, I think this is sort of, you know, more broadly thinking about this in the context of like stimuli responsive drug delivery. So if we could program these interactions to be under direction of a particular stimulus. And so one of the areas I've been interested in for the last few years is the glucose stimulus. So thinking about Interactions or you know stuff that could that it could exist um, dependent on some sort of glucose trigger right and so if I were to want to design a better um, insulin delivery strategy i could I could make something that you know if it sees elevated glucose now the material opens or swells or does some other sort of thing to to release a bunch of insulin uh, we We've called this approach in literature for for the last few years kind of the fully synthetic pancreas idea the idea that we could make you know. A, um, a a polymer or a material that could do the glucose sensing and insulin secreting function of a healthy pancreas to sort of recreate that that endocrine function of a uh, of, uh, in diseased uh, state.
1: Hmm. Okay. So, what the um, any very specific projects you're working on that would be interesting to talk about? You know, one or two of them, or are you not able to say like specific applications you're working on?
2: You know we're doing a few different things. Um, I'm excited about a lot of a lot of different stuff. It's the uh, the blessing and the curse of my current position is I get you know I have I have resources and people and um, you know and the, everybody has good energy and excitement and enthusiasm and so um, so then we go and we, we we try to do a lot of different crazy stuff. Um, right now one of our primary efforts is in making um, glucose responsive and or rescue glucagon. So, glucagon is um, the hormone that acts sort of um, opposite to insulin. So, if your blood glucose goes too low, glucagon is secreted um, to make your glucose go back to a normal level. Uh, In diabetic uh, individuals, these uh, often there's a lot of fear and and risk associated with your blood glucose going too low. And so, we've been thinking about ways of making kind of glucose-activatable glucagons. Uh, to try to raise blood glucose back to a normal level. And so this is some work that um, has been funded by uh, uh, a few different uh, people over the years, uh, the Helmsley Charitable Trust and then the American Diabetes Association has funded different components of this work. Um, And so we're very excited about this idea of thinking about um, kind of an insurance policy for diabetics through smarter materials or smarter formulations or smarter... Uh, protein modifications or, or tags or triggers.
1: So what are some of the things that can uh selectively change a molecule? You know, I, I would guess temperature, pH, shear force. You know, what about magnetism uh, you know, electric fields? I mean, what are the different things that can modulate a molecule?
2: Yeah, I think you named a lot of the really good ones. Um we've, you know, we we've written about different things over the years, you know, pH responsive, temperature responsive, um, salt osmotic kind of content responsive, you know, any sort of field, magnetic, electric, all these things. Um, we're thinking about sort of modulating properties um, in certain ways, playing some of these tricks. But you know, if I um, if I make a molecule that can bind glucose, well, maybe now I can have a different property from the mo- of the molecule when it's bound to glucose versus when it's free from glucose, for example. And so we demonstrated this a few years ago in a, um, in a paper on glucose-responsive insulin where we put these little glucose-binding chemical moieties on the insulin, and the insulin was more potent and more active at, at high glucose and less potent and less active at low glucose. And so um, this could be kind of like a little switch on your on your insulin protein to, to tune its potency as a function of glucose, right? Um, and so that's one we've been thinking about a lot. Um, you know, I think anytime you think about cancer or addressing inflammatory diseases or these other sorts of things you know, biomarkers specific to the disease site are really nice for kind of spatial control of, of therapeutic deployment. So maybe it's enzymes, maybe it's reactive oxygen species. Um, these are all obviously very useful, um, you know, to, to kind of think about getting some sort of a spatial definition in, in how your therapy is deployed. Uh, so Those are some other ones, in addition to the ones you mentioned, I think that we, we're we interested in.
1: I guess you've seen the molecules where in Another molecule binds to a certain site, it changes the whole nature of that molecule. Maybe it opens up more active sites, shuts down others.
2: Yeah, I think that's sort of the, 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 the eventual vision would be something like that, right? Where, you know, collagen in the body, for example, is very famous for grabbing these cryptic sites where something binds to collagen or an enzyme acts on collagen in some way and uh, it opens, it reveals concealed sites to reveal new bioactivity in the collagen protein that was otherwise concealed, right? And so, that's sort of a vision I have or a dream I have to make, you know, kind of sensing and, and dynamically restructuring materials that, that can kind of behave in that way, where you can have, you know, something that comes in and acts as a trigger or an activator that then reveals new, um, otherwise hidden bioactivities.
1: And that exists in nature quite a bit.
0: That's
2: no, I mean, the the I famous here. one that I always like is, you know, if I'm going to cite it in a review or something, is the cryptic sites in collagen. sites that are that are known to exist but are kind of sequestered and hidden until um until something comes in and activates them
1: Mm. so how how does that happen that activation does the molecule like twist and turn and come open or do the bond strengths change and now all of a sudden i don't know the distribution of the electrons and the you know on some of the the atoms change i mean how does it happen
2: you could think about it in a few different ways right you could think about like a molecule with a hinge like structure that then as it binds to something this hinge group opens and maybe reveals something that's kind of trapped in you know in the hinge otherwise um you can always think about you know you could have molecules that have enzyme sensitive bonds um so you know an esterase or uh you know something like that could come in and chew on a chew on a portion of the molecule and 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 reveal some hidden activity that was otherwise sort of concealed by a by a steric blocking group um so you could think about, I think, a couple of different ways of, of doing that. Maybe it's you know degradation based. Maybe it's molecular, um, you know, kind of uh, conformation or, or reconfiguration. Hmm.
1: Okay. Well, very good. So, what would be like a great result for you in the next few years? What would you love to have happen?
2: You know, I think I'd like to, um, you know, I'd like to kind of see where we can push these materials into some new, into some new spaces. Um, I mentioned, you know, I'm an engineer. I do want to solve, you know, big important problems. Um, We've we've kind of bit off a big part of our research program, uh, going after diabetes in different ways, and so that's one that I'm I'm very interested in. I think it's a very very challenging problem. And then I look at you know the landscape and the fact that one in three Americans are going to have diabetes by 2050, right? I mean this is a a, 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 just an enormous challenge moving forward. Um, I'm presently interested in uh, in 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 kind of combating drug abuse. Uh, So thinking about you know, new alternatives, or um, maybe new ways of managing uh, pain, or new ways of uh, of combating addiction. You um, know, I'm located in the Midwest, and we, you know, we have a lot of, you know, even a disproportionately high number of, you know, overdoses of things like fentanyl and these other scary um, drugs that uh, that are that are very dangerous and um, are causing a lot of uh, pain and suffering and and early death, right, and so we're you know I'm interested in that as a problem um it's something i've uh we haven't we haven't necessarily started too much on my group in my group on this yet, but it's just sort of a it's a problem that I've circled sort of in my mind of of one I'd like to think about addressing moving forward
1: okay, very good well Matt what was the best way for people to get in touch and ask questions and see papers and pictures and things like that?
2: You know, I'm, I'm I most as most academics, I have a decent online presence, and so you know they can find me through through the internet. Uh, WeberLab.com, W-E-B-B-E-R Lab, Lab.com is my my main website where I post our papers and things. Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter as well, um, at WeberLab, uh, If they'd like to you know follow me or you know just kind of keep up with the work we're doing. And then, of course, you know, I, I'm pretty responsive via email. So if somebody'd like to, you know, know more, more about our work or, you know, you know or have, you know, further discussion, um, they're welcome to to try to email me. And that's uh, the email address is available on the website. It's just m.weber at nd.edu. So um, okay. yeah, that'd be, that'd be great. I'd love to, to talk more. So
1: okay, Matt. Well, thank you for coming. I appreciate.
2: it. Yeah. No, thank you for having me. It's been fun talking. So.